Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the first Heredity podcast of 2013. I'm Jeff Marsh. Now, I don't know about you, but I ate a lot over the holidays. So in keeping with this theme, this month's podcast is themed around food. And we'll start off with a fish course. The Brookchar salvelinus fontinalis is an economically important species native to eastern North America. And as it makes up more than half of Quebec's freshwater aquaculture in terms of weight, people are interested in maximising its production. Louis Bernachet and Berenice Baugas of Laval University in Quebec have been experimenting with making hybrids between three genetically different populations in order to study how their phenotypes matched up to that of their parents. Because fish do a lot of their early development in eggs, it's not just their parents' genes that can affect their phenotype. There can also be non-genetic parental effects. Louis and his team therefore paid close attention to levels of transcription at the very early stages of development between the crosses, in order to weed out any of these suspected parental effects from the data. I gave Louis a call and started off by asking, what exactly do we mean by parental effects? Parental effects mainly pertains to, if you want, non-genetic input to the phenotype of the progeny. So more precisely, in the case of fish, for example, can be the quality of nutrients found in the eggs, and that will have incidence on the health and the growth and survival of, of the progeny. And that does not necessarily directly relate to the genetics of the mother, but rather to the quality of her phenotype. Okay, so you were looking at fish in this study then, you were looking at the brook char. What made you think that there were parental effects going on in this species in the first place? Well, I mean, especially in uh, in fish, because of this important input from the eggs mainly, in this fish species, uh, brook char, which is a salmonid fish, or other fishes, uh, parental effects are always uh, suspected. What we don't understand is what's happening in the gene expression level. Okay, and that's exactly what you were looking at in, in this study. You were looking at the levels of transcription in the very early developmental stages. Yeah, exactly. So we were interested in understanding how the directionality of uh, crosses could influence patterns of gene expression, and we were interested into that because we know very little about that in any types of species. Now, you mentioned that you were using a very specific type of cross called a reciprocal cross. Um, First of all, what is that and why were you using it? Well, these three different strains that we have used in the experiments, those are strains that are being uh, domesticated for aquaculture production and uh, producers may be interested in making hybrids between these strains in order to improve production and, and so on. Okay, that's why you're looking at this species. It's not because it's a a useful model organism, it's because it's an important food source and you'd like to maximize production. Absolutely, that's that's exactly the point. And also we use that species to show that we can study that 
types of complex phenomena, not only in model species like Drosophila and, and the like, but also in non-model species, which is this species that his main interest is in more like aquaculture and sport fisheries, but uh, it's definitely not labeled as a, as a model species. Okay, so you looked at the transcriptomes, as they're called, of these young crosses. What did you find? We, uh, we made these two types of hybrid crosses. One involved uh, what we call the Laval strain and domestic strains, and we use, in one case, females from the Laval strains and the other, other crosses, the females from the domestic strains. And we did that also for another hybrid crosses between the Laval strain and the Rupert strain. So what we observed is that we had a very strong parental effects only at the second time period out of these three time periods that we that we measured gene expression. Very, very strong signal of differences in gene expressions, whether the female was coming from one strain or the other strain. So that by definition was strong parental effects, but nothing at the other two time periods. Well what were those time periods then? So that second time period corresponds to what we called yolk sac resorptions, which is the time when the, uh, the, uh, the, the fish embryo start using the energy reserves and the resources that are in its yolk sac that was transmitted from the mother. So that corresponds to that time period when we had a very strong uh, parental effects on patterns of gene expression. But the number of genes involved and the type of genes involved were not the same in the two type crosses. So that's another very important observation. But what does it mean? First, it reveals the complexity of the factors and mechanisms involved in controlling gene expression. So we have this parental effect that will be important at some specific time periods, but the scale and the nature of these effects will depend on the actual genomes that you are mixing. So it's very complex, and I think we're just starting to realize the specific genome architecture will have a profound effect on gene expression and related phenotypic variation that will relate to that as well, like growth, for example. I mean, wh why do you suppose then that these parental effects were strongest then during that yolk sac resorption phase? Well, most likely is because at the time period earlier than that, the uh, fish embryos have not started to use the yolk sac reserve that was transmitted by the mother. And at the third time period, they had used it up. So they have started to feed on their own, so they're not depending on what the mother transmitted to them. But at that second time period, it's right at the time then they would heavily depend on resources and other components, potentially uh, RNA and so on, that have been transmitted from the mother into the yolk sac. So at that second time period, you would expect interactions between the offspring-owned genome and the, the maternal input that is uh, contained in the yolk sac. Now, we're talking about parental effects. Obviously, these offspring have two parents. Was, was the effect strongest from the maternal or the paternal side? Uh, more on the maternal side, as we would expect, but paternal effects can also be involved. But the way that the experiment was uh, designed here cannot tell the maternal and paternal effects uh, apart. It sounds like it makes kind of intuitive sense that the maternal effects would take their effect during this yolk sac resorption because that's the only time when any of the products from the mother were sort of interacting with the offspring. Does that tell you what's going on? 
this study was kind of a first step to pinpoint you know, when in time things would happen and what would be the scale of the differences in patterns of gene expressions and what genes would be involved. So at this stage, we don't fully understand uh, the mechanisms involved just because it was not the ultimate goal of this study. But definitely it has something to do with the nutrient input of the female in interaction with the, the actual genome of the offspring. And it's also possible that there is a RNA being transmitted by the females and can be into action as well in interaction with the genome of the, of the offspring at that stage. Okay, and, and the variable that you were measuring here was the transcriptome. It was levels of RNA and whatnot. Did they translate to any kind of useful phenotypic traits? Like were, were some of these fish bigger and more, you know, tastier? Or, or you know, what's the important variable here? Yes, of course, there's, there's still a long way. I mean, we measure gene expression, let's say, because it's, relatively speaking, it's one of the easy steps. I mean, you can measure expression level across thousands of genes simultaneously, and, you know, which is quite cool. Then, obviously, we will need to understand what happens. How does that translate at the protein level? But that's a much more complex and costly step, if you want. And then, ultimately, the link between that and important phenotypes. So it's a long, it's a long process. But here, we could at least start to make some inference about differences in patterns of expression of specific genes and differences in growth that we observe among these different crosses that were involved in the study. So we could, we could identify some specific candidate genes with some biological functions that can uh, potentially relate to growth differences. So it's kind of a first step, if you want, between understanding uh, in this system the, the, the relationship between uh, the genes, uh, their expression, and the resulting phenotype. And from the results of, of this study then, what kind of advice could you garner then for a, a fish aquaculture for how to kind of maximize their production? Well, we cannot go too far at this stage, but one thing that is clearly comes out is that the type of crosses that you, that you make, the directionality of the crosses, which is uh, using female or male form one strain as opposed to the other, definitely will not generate the same uh, the same outcome in terms of uh, in terms of phenotype and at least in the specific case of these three strains that are being used in aquaculture for brook char we can say something about the most likely you know successful crosses in terms of expected uh, growth we need to take into consideration also the environments where the different strains are being reared and that adds to the complexity so basically at this stage, we know what crosses will be most performant in what environmental conditions. And also we, you know, we have some understanding on, the, on some of the mechanisms involved, uh, and that stems partly from this study here, understanding what happens early in life in terms of uh, differential gene expression and how it relates to, uh, to growth. So you know, I think we're moving forward. That was Louis Bernachet of Laval University in Quebec. Next up, we move on to our carbs. Crop production is already reaching its peak, and with the global population set to increase from 6 to 9 billion by 2050, production will need to be ramped up significantly. But apart from the problems of land use and a changing climate, 
the crops we currently rely on don't have the necessary genetic variation to make new, more productive varieties. Dr Julie King of the University of Nottingham is working on tapping into the largely untouched variation in closely related species. Here she is. The current problem with nutrition, especially in the sort of more fundamental crop plants, is that although we have enough at the moment, I suppose, the predicted requirements for 2050, we are going to fall short. So at the moment, we need to increase our food production, but that has various problems associated with it. And one is that a lot of the crop plants that are providing the food for the world um, are limited in their genetic variation. So if you are trying to breed a plant for warmer temperatures or cold tolerance, you can't breed that plant if you don't have genetic variation for those traits already present. Okay, so you're in the business then of making new crosses with kind of related species, is that right? Yes, trying to take more ancestral species which have been used in the past but without any sort of knowledge. So they've been used without people really realising or understanding what was actually going into the crop plants but they do provide a, a, a very wide base of this sort of genetic variation, so therefore, which has largely been untapped in a lot of cases. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like this is the kind of thing that should have been going on for millennia, you know, the kind of, in a, at least in a haphazard way. What is it about now that has made these kind of um, breeding programmes more possible? Uh, the main reason is the um, rapid increase in the molecular marker work and that gives us the ability to be able to develop markers um, using different systems. I mean, here at Nottingham, we're using SNP markers, but the University of Bristol is very much involved in this grant that we're working on. And Professor Keith Edwards has done a lot of work on genotyping. And it means that now we are able to track what we are crossing into weeks so we can actually work out which chromosomes we've transferred, which bits of chromosomes we've transferred, which bits have come out of the first generation, gone into the next generation. That's a big difference. We can actually work out what we've done. Right, and so this is called ancestral introgression. Why don't you tell me how this works then in a bit more detail? In the wheat plants that we're working on at the moment, um, it's entirely through normal hybridisation. So we take a wheat plant and we take one of the ancestral plants that we would like to cross it to um, and we literally take the pollen from the one and put it onto the stigma, the female part of the other one. What kind of parts of the chromosomes are you, are you looking to introgress into these crop species? Right, well at the moment we're going about it in two ways. So the first way is we are targeting four species. And the idea is that we are using them to cross to wheat. And the aim is to transfer the whole of each of the genomes of those four species into wheat in small overlapping chromosome segments so that when we are able to go about screening the hybrids for different traits or characteristics, we will be able to track um, which chromosomes or chromosome segments 
um, are conferring traits of interest so that at the end of it we'd land up with 20, 30 different offspring plants, uh, all of which would contain small pieces of chromosome, but then when you look at them collectively, they would actually be carrying the whole genome of one of those species between them. Uh, I see. So at this stage, you're still sort of doing the diagnostics of which parts of the genome do what? At the moment, we're still doing the crossing. (laughs) It's a huge program. I mean, at the moment, we have somewhere between 6,000 plants between the wheat plants and the um, wild relatives. And we're aiming to sort of do about three, four thousand crosses per crossing season, which is a lot of work. And then the molecular analysis in the lab on some of the off the hybrids that we produce from that crossing programme. Right. So it's it's not going to happen overnight. But what's the ultimate goal? Are you planning to make a sort of super crop that has all sorts of different kinds of resistance? Yeah, well, our main aim at the moment is the germplasm development. There's been very little work done on putting genetic variation into wheat and other crop plants since the early 1980s. So effectively, the breeders since then have just been using the variation that was already present. And I mean, they've done a brilliant job because crop yield has been going up year after year after year. But that yield, although it is still increasing, is starting to tail off. And that's why at the moment there's this big initiative to try and increase the genetic variation. The breeders will be then using the um, the material that we produce to transfer that genetic variation into their elite varieties. In other words, the varieties that will be going into the fields 10 years down the line, because that's how long it takes to produce a variety. And in terms of those regions of the chromosomes that are getting moved around, are they all equally easy to get to recombine? Or are some regions of the chromosome more more difficult to coax into recombining? Well, certainly our work on um, the grasses, the stuca and lolium, um, but also an awful lot of work that's gone on in different plants and everything, has shown that certainly the crop um, species, certain regions of chromosomes... Um, recombine at a far higher frequency than other regions. Um, And one of the outcomes of that would be to suggest that breeders in the past, um, when they make their crosses, they are not really releasing some of the genetic variation, which is sort of locked into these regions, which don't recombine. So we're also interested in trying to manipulate frequencies of recombination and therefore you sort of you're far more likely to put different combinations of genes together and given that at this stage you're not genetically modifying the crops as such are you kind of is is your work immune to the controversy that sort of surrounds gm crops um our work doesn't involve any of that it's not exactly what would go on out in the field because wheat is an inbreeder so normally it would fertilize itself Um, But all we are doing is taking pollen and just putting it on the stigma. And then because by doing it manually, quite often it will fertilize the wheat totally normally. Okay, so, I mean, do you think that this is a less hazardous path for crop improvement to take in the future, given all uh, all the friction that genetically modified crops generally get from the public? Um, I think so, yes, especially as, I mean, the wheat itself 
is a polyploid plant which has arisen in the past through the fusion, if you like, um, of three different genomes. Um, and certainly some of the wild relatives that we are using um, are, have been shown to be the um, donors for some of those genomes in wheat. So we're only using really what's there in the first place. That was Julie King from the University of Nottingham in the UK. And that's it for this episode of the Heredity Podcast. See you again in a month's time. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.